You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We kicked off the year 2021 with a series on resilient faith that looked mostly at what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, a bit of a run through the book of Revelation to start it off. Um, But now I want to bring us back to John's Gospel. We haven't been in John's Gospel for about three months or so. So I think it might be helpful to recap what it is that John has shown us already in the first six chapters. Firstly, he tells us why he wrote the gospel in chapter 20 when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So far through John's gospel, though, we've seen more unbelief than belief. John's goal might be aimed at making people believe, but Jesus seems to be particularly unsuccessful at producing believers. John recounts only seven miracles in his gospel, and he calls them signs. We've seen five of them already, and those five are the changing of water into wine in chapter 2, healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5, feeding the multitude, in chapter 6, and walking on water, in also in chapter 6. Still to come, two more miracles, are healing the man born blind, that's chapter 9, and raising Lazarus from the dead, in chapter 11. Now, one thing that has struck me, and I've said this before, but one thing that struck me as I've been studying the Gospel of John is just how ineffective miracles seem to be for stirring genuine faith in people and for bringing about real salvations. Now that surprised me, I must admit, when I started digging into it, especially because many of my formative years as a Christian were spent in the Pentecostal church. And in the Pentecostal church, miracles are considered the necessary evidence of true Christian faith. I was also surprised by how often Jesus did these miracles in private or before a small audience, rather than trying to seek to attract attention to them in a big crowd. When he performed The water into wine miracle, for instance, the only people that knew were the servants. When he healed the royal official's son, the man himself didn't know until the following day. He took Jesus at his word and went about his business for the rest of the day and didn't go home until 24 hours later. The boy's family that witnessed him being healed didn't know what had happened until the husband and father of the family got home and said that this is what Jesus said. And this is what time he said it. And they realised then that that was the precise time the boy was cured and healed. And so they believed too. However, all the people that were there when Jesus healed the man's son were clamouring to get a, a miracle from Jesus, but they got nothing more than a rebuke. Jesus told them they were only interested in following him to see miracles as if he was a magician or a circus performer to entertain the crowd. The lame man at the pool of Bethesda was chosen out of multitudes of crippled and needy people at the pool. One person chosen. 
Jesus disappeared before anyone could even realise what had happened and before the man could realise who it was that healed him. The man didn't know who Jesus was until Jesus confronted him later on about his sin. And at that point, to show his gratitude, he promptly dobbed Jesus into the authorities. <laughs> the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, so potentially 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people, was a very public miracle, of course, but it came at the end of a very long day of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear from the account there that the people were only following Jesus to see more miracles, not because they were hungry to hear and believe his word. Jesus then, of course, walks on the storm-tossed waters of the Sea of Galilee at night, away from watching eyes. The only ones who see that are the 12 disciples in the boat. It's remarkable, I think. We'll see a similar, similar pattern when we get to the final two signs in John's Gospel. Because I'm convinced John wants us to understand that the saving power of God's word, when it's received and believed, is what actually changes hearts, changes lives. And to not be sidetracked by show business as Jesus told the crowd at the royal nobleman's uh, son's healing. Another thing that surprised me to a lesser extent, though, but still did, was how little faith was necessary on the part of the recipient of the miracle in each case. In not one of the, of the seven signs is there any exercise of faith on the part of the recipients with the sole exception of the man born blind, who believed Jesus enough to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, when Jesus told him to, it wasn't until he washed that he received his sight back. But he had no idea who Jesus was. He only knew the man's name that had healed him. Lazarus, of course, couldn't exercise any faith. He'd been dead for four days already. In my Pentecostal background, I've heard all sorts of excuses for why so-and-so didn't get healed. A common one is that they lack the faith to be healed. That's a, quite a guilt trip to lay on a desperate and needy person. It's virtually guaranteed to drive them to despair or to legalistic works or to abandon their faith entirely. If you notice, the lack of faith never seemed to bother Jesus. It's notable that John refers to all these miracles as signs. A sign is not what's important. It's not the thing we camp around or get obsessed with. The purpose of a sign is to point to something else, or in this case, to point to someone else. Which is why I think John chose these seven specific miracles all out of all the hundreds or maybe thousands of miracles that Jesus performed. John's purpose in presenting them is, you'd remember, is that you would believe. And miracles were never designed to bring about saving faith. They're only designed to point to the source of the miracle. Only the word of God is actually designed to save. Which is exactly what John shows us over and over and over again in his gospel. While we see almost no one believe in Jesus due to miracles, we do see the people that receive and believe his word get saved. And thank God so does everyone else who receives and believes his word today.
which is why I think John spends so little time on miracles and so much time on Jesus' teaching. For as I said, it's God's word that has the power to save, not the miracles. So if you've got your Bibles there, would you open them to the end of John chapter 6? We'll go back a few verses to get the context, starting in verse 53, John 6, 53, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offence at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he... One of the twelve was going to betray him. This is a hard saying. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now that doesn't sound very appealing, to be sure. But what's so hard about it, really? It seems a pretty straightforward statement. So what was it that the Jews found so hard about it? Well, it's hard in at least two ways. It's hard to understand, for one thing. Whoever heard of a person offering his literal body as food and his lifeblood as drink to other people? Now, maybe someone might in an extreme situation where a plane has crashed in an isolated mountain range and the survivors are slowly starving to death as they wait to be found. Some of you know that happened before in real life. In South America in 1972, a plane there crashed into the snowy mountains in a remote part of Argentina. Of the 45 on board, 34 of them survived the crash. Of those 34, 18 of them died before rescue came 
nearly three months later. Some of them died of the injuries they sustained in the crash, but many more of them died of starvation as their meagre food supplies ran out inside a week. They eventually came to agreement that those who died would become food for those who still lived. Only 16 people lived to tell the horrific tale. Now that's an extreme circumstance, of course. Jesus doesn't, doesn't appear to be suggesting cannibalism to us. Besides, at this point, he's still alive and healthy and none of his audience are starving to death in the snowy mountains of them. So it's hard, to, it's hard saying, at least in part, because it's hard to understand what it is that Jesus really means by it. But Jesus has already made pretty clear early in his discussion with them for those who had ears to hear, that to eat his flesh and drink his blood is symbolic language for believing him and putting your trust in him. Besides, in that day, the whole idea of eating human flesh would have been unthinkable to the Jews, as it is to us today. And more than that, drinking blood was absolutely forbidden in the Old Testament law. So the Jews must have known that Jesus was telling them they needed to look deeper into what he was saying. Those in the crowd who were determined to stick with the cannibalism idea would have done so not because they didn't know what Jesus was really suggesting, but because they were determined to reject what he said and they were latching on to his words in a deliberate attempt to avoid his meaning. It still happens today. Have you noticed? People latch onto words to avoid the meaning. Now that leads us to the next difficulty. It's hard to accept. More likely than being hard to understand for his original hearers, it was hard to accept. Jesus had been making claims that cut straight across their precious and tenaciously held beliefs. You might say, to use modern ideas, that Jesus made claims that were odd, at odds with their personal truth. I'll have more to say about personal truth before we're done, but they hated Jesus. They hated everything he did. They hated everything he stood for. They hated Jesus for exposing their hypocrisy. They hated him for knowing the scriptures better than they did. And they despised him and rejected everything he said. They were already making plans to kill him after he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda back in chapter 5. And here he stands claiming to be the true bread from heaven, heaven, claiming to be greater than Moses, claiming to be the source of life, eternal life. And worse yet, a blasphemy they couldn't tolerate. He's claiming to be God. They could never accept that. They couldn't tolerate it. And so they rejected everything he said. And they tried to explain away everything he did, even accusing him of being the devil's puppet. This man had to die. One day, about a year into the future, they'll get their way. They'll make sure he's nailed to a Roman cross to suffer an agonising death. They'll make sure he dies in a way 
that most graphically illustrates that he's cursed by God. And I'll make sure that all the witnesses will see and understand that this man, this Jesus, is cursed by God. All because this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? People make excuses today to reject what Jesus said too. You hear the excuses every time you talk to a non-Christian friend about him. People will make any excuse to reject Jesus and to refuse to believe in God. Excuses like, I don't believe Jesus is real. He's a myth like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. There's no evidence that he ever existed. Or, I don't need Jesus. He's only for weak people. I'm doing fine, thank you very much. I don't need outside help. Or, I believe Jesus was real, but he isn't God. He's just a good man, a good teacher, and that's all he was. I don't need to believe in him. Or, why should I believe anything the Bible says? It's full of contradictions and made-up stories, and any intelligent person knows that there's no such thing as miracles and demons and nonsense like that. Anyway, science has proven there is no God, hasn't it? Or, I tried Jesus when I was young and it didn't work. Or, I've got more important things to worry about. I've got a family to raise and a job to hold down and chores to do around the home. Who has time for God? Well, what does some dead Jew 2,000 years ago have to do with me, even if he was real? He's not relevant to me. Or, God is love. He won't punish me. He loves everyone. So if God is real, I'll be safe anyway. Well, how about I'm a good person? I try not to hurt or cheat people. I even give to charities and go to church regularly. Surely God won't judge or condemn me. Or, if God was real, he'd put an end to all this suffering. But he hasn't, so obviously there's no good, no God. Or he's not good. Or there are plenty of ways to heaven and to God. Jesus is just one of them. I prefer to follow Buddha or Allah or the mother goddess or some other god. Or Christians are all hypocrites. They pretend to be better than everyone else while behaving worse behind closed doors. Who would want to get involved in that? Or the God of the Bible is a bloodthirsty, vicious, racist, sexist, homophobic and all-round intolerant God. And kill his own son? It's cosmic child abuse. I have higher moral standards than a God like that, so why would I believe in that sort of God? You've probably heard versions of all of these excuses at some time. You may have made those sorts of excuses yourself in the past. They're all variations on, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? We must admit Jesus is the master of hard sayings. It's funny, so many people think of Jesus as a good bloke who wouldn't harm a fly and only ever says lovely things to people. And it's true that he does say lots of nice and encouraging things. But that's not all the Bible records of what he says. He frequently says hard things, difficult things, challenging things, hard to understand things. 
He even says uncomfortable or offensive or hard to stomach things. Jesus was never frightened to make people feel uncomfortable. Which makes an interesting contrast to how hard we work today to not offend anyone with Jesus. Anyway, Jesus doesn't concern himself with their reaction here. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't live. Nor does he seem very concerned about their reaction elsewhere. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Or whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Or but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Do not think that, think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If anyone does not abide in me, He's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Every one of those quotes was originally spoken by Jesus. They're not very palatable, most of them. And Jesus spoke more about the reality of hell and eternal punishment than anyone else in the Bible. You can understand why people might find some of his sayings hard to accept. The next time you hear someone spouting nonsense about what a lovely fellow Jesus is who would never say harsh stuff, you might like to ask them, have you ever even read the Bible? Now you might believe that you need to trust in Jesus to be saved, but what if that's not my personal truth? What if I think I can believe in Jesus or Allah or Buddha or no one at all and still be saved? What if that's my personal truth? But will my personal truth really help me, even if I really, really believe it? Think about how absurd this concept of personal truth really is. Imagine I'm confronted with a gaping chasm that I want to get across. Problem is, this chasm starts with a thousand foot drop. And I'm standing on the edge of the cliff, cliff of that drop. Now how convinced do I need to be of my personal truth 
to step off that cliff edge and get across safely? Will 75% do? Or 99% or 100% believe that I can get across? That's my personal truth. What about if I'm 110% or 150 or 200? Will I get across safely? What if I have a million percent certainty that if I step off that cliff, I won't plunge to my death, but I'll float across safely? Even blind Freddy can see what's going to happen. My personal truth is useless. And so is my certainty that I can reject Jesus and his claims and still be safe from doom. It doesn't matter how much I dislike what he has to say. It doesn't matter how difficult it is to accept. It doesn't matter if it disagrees with my personal truth. It doesn't matter even if I think he's lying or believe that he never existed in the first place. When personal truth goes up against God's truth, up against objective truth, there's only ever going to be one winner. My personal truth is doomed in the face of God's truth. Changing the illustration slightly, what about if that 1,000 foot cliff is in reality a piece of pavement art? You've seen pictures of this, I'm sure you may have seen it in, in reality. A talented artist sketches a hole onto a concrete footpath in chalk and the drawing is so realistic that people tiptoe around the edge lest they fall to their death through yeah, in this hole. Now how much confidence do I need to step safely off that cliff? 200%? 100%? 50%? Now 1% of trust would be enough to carry me safely across that chasm. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. If Jesus' claims are true, that tiny mustard seed of faith will be enough to carry you safely across the chasm of death, safe into the loving and welcoming arms of your heavenly Father. Jesus needs no more faith than that from us. So you can put aside all your carefully crafted excuses and all your indignant objections. There's one truth you can count on. There's one truth you can be certain about. No matter what your situation or your experience or your background or your station in life. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews rejected and abandoned Jesus in droves. They couldn't accept what he had to say. They wanted him to keep performing miracles for them and feeding them and healing their sick. They didn't really want to hear his message. As soon as the message got hard to take, they showed their true colours and turned away. Multiplied thousands were clamouring after him only yesterday when he fed them. 
But after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It all got too much to take. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. The opposition, which is only just beginning at this point, really begins to ramp up after this event. The clock is ticking. It's 12 months almost to the day when he'll be tried, convicted and executed. But now everyone has abandoned him, except the 12. His whole ministry was done under a cloud of rejection, betrayal and death. Jesus knew it from the start. He knows the people that will reject him. He knows which one of the twelve will betray him. And he carried the burden of that knowledge every day of his life. He knew it when he chose the twelve. Judas would follow him for his own reasons and his own agenda. But he'd never actually believe in Jesus. Not like the other eleven who for all their struggles and misunderstandings and weaknesses believed him and trusted him. Now, the Jesus that Judas believed in was a very different Jesus. Jesus want, Judas wanted a Jesus who would rise up and overthrow the Romans. He could never come to terms with a Jesus who clearly had such power and authority and yet would refuse to use it to get his own way. A Jesus who would serve and suffer like a slave. That's not the Jesus that Judas wanted. Not a Jesus that Judas could believe in. And so it is today. Many people reject Jesus because he's not the kind of God they want to believe in. He's too weak. He's too intolerant. He's too distant. You name it, the excuses are endless. At the end of the day, they all want a God made in their own image. But that's not Jesus. He will never be a God made in anyone's image. He will never allow himself to be squeezed into anyone's mould. If you've used one of the myriad excuses to ignore and reject Jesus up to this day, I plead with you to take seriously the claims of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him and he will grant you eternal life. That's what all this talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood is about. It's a picture of putting your trust in him, of becoming so involved and identified with him that you take him into yourself, just like eating food. And the result will be life everlasting. Are you entertaining reasons why you should turn your back on Jesus? Has it all become too hard to do? Or too hard to understand? Or too hard to believe? too hard to stomach do you want to go away as well I would urge you to stay the course we'll see next week when we look at Peter's response to that question there's nowhere else to go for all the challenges and difficulties we may face today one day it will all make sense one day it will all be clear one day it will all be worth it for, we, for now we know only in part, then we will know fully. On that day, all the pieces of the puzzle will fall into place and the whole glorious picture will be displayed.
If you're struggling in your Christian walk, please come and talk to me or talk to a trusted Christian friend. We Christians are called, every one of us, to carry one another's burdens through this life. For those of us who have already taken him at his word, who have already put our trust in him, be thankful for his grace towards you. It wasn't deserved. Be thankful that as you continue to take him in, he will continue to nourish you and build you up for life here and for life eternal. And one of the ways that happens is by participating in the sharing of the bread and the juice in the act that we now call communion, the Lord's Supper. So we'll just take a moment or two and invite you to come up and collect some a piece of bread and a glass of juice there. invite you all to stand as we take the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. By this act, we are acknowledging the truth of Jesus' claim to be the true bread from heaven, the true drink that nourishes for eternal life. While we're not feeding literally on the blood and body of Christ, as some would think, we are feeding on him by continued faith in his death, his burial and his resurrection represented by this bread and this juice. And that determination in our hearts to hold fast to him will build up our faith. Just like eating food, healthy food, will gradually and imperceptibly strengthen your body, so feeding on him by reading his word, praying, hearing the word preached and taught, by fellowship, by meditating on his word, and by taking communion, will gradually build you up, imperceptibly even, will strengthen your soul and put steel in your spine and build your faith. So I invite you to just reflect for a moment and take the bread and the juice when you're ready. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that by your shed body and your your broken body and your shed blood that you've made a way into heaven for us. That you've torn down that wall, that barrier that was between us and God. You tore open the curtain of the temple, you've torn down that wall that we can in good conscience come into the presence of a holy God and this bread and this juice that we just shared together reminds us of that reminds us today of what you've done and your word Lord that we've examined today that you are true bread and true blood that you nourish to eternal life Lord we thank you for that as we put our trust in you as we take you in 
by the hearing of the word, by the singing of the word, songs that exalt you, songs taken out of scripture, by fellowship and encouraging each other, and by a multitude of other ways, Lord, that you build us up, you strengthen us, and you display your faithfulness to us, Lord, every day of our lives. So, Father, I thank you for the work you have done in each one of my brothers and sisters here this morning and those who are tuning in by Zoom and and the video messages later on, Lord. I thank you that you've done that work in my brothers and sisters, that you have made us one body, Lord, one family. And I pray that you continue to strengthen us, encourage us, and, Lord, that you keep our hearts and our minds fixed on you, for to whom, to whom else can we go? Where else can we go, Lord? Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that this week will be a week of uh, of just great joy in your presence. That each one of them will walk out of here today, Lord, strengthened with a spring in their step because they know, Lord, that you are faithful to us, that you will sustain us to the very last day and on into eternity pray for opportunities, Lord, that we can tell other people about the joy that we've found when you've brought salvation to us. Pray that you'll open hearts and minds to receive the word as we share it. And we look forward to testimonies, Lord, of those who have believed, received Jesus for salvation. Thank you, Father. In the name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.